The Creative Nonfiction Podcast is sponsored by Goucher College's Master of Fine Arts and Nonfiction. The Goucher MFA is a two-year low-residency program. Online classes let you learn from anywhere, while on-campus residencies allow you to hone your craft with accomplished mentors who have Pulitzer Prizes and best-selling books to their names. The program boasts a nationwide network of students, faculty, and alumni, which has published 140 books and counting. You'll get opportunities to meet literary agents and learn the ins and outs of the publishing journey. Visit goucher.edu forward slash nonfiction to start your journey now. Take your writing to the next level and go from hopeful to published in Goucher's MFA program for nonfiction. Hey, how's it going, friend? I'm Brendan O'Mara, and this is my podcast, the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, the show where I speak to badass writers, filmmakers, and producers about the art and craft of telling true stories. This episode is the last one of 2018. We've averaged one episode a week for an entire year with no break, and we are finishing strong. Here at CNF Pod HQ, in many ways, this is the logical conclusion of the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. This is the Tony Soprano cut the black moment, Walter White dying beside his precious meth lab, or Gollum plummeting into the fires of Mount Doom with the ring of power clutched to his hand. This interview with the one and only Laura Hillenbrand was about two years in the making and through unshakable endurance on both sides, we were able to get this done and I don't think you'll be disappointed by this in the least. For those who don't know, it's hard to believe that there are people out there who don't know, but for those who don't, Laura is the best-selling author of Seabiscuit, an American legend, and Unbroken, a World War II story of survival, resilience, and redemption. I think best-selling is an understatement. I think both books have sold like six trillion copies, give or take. Unbroken spent a staggering 42 weeks at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Both books made into Oscar-nominated movies with Gary Ross directing Seabiscuit and Angelina Jolie directing Unbroken. Laura won the National Magazine Award in 2004 for her New Yorker article, A Sudden Illness, which describes the acute onset of chronic fatigue syndrome, or CFS, that has been with her since the 1980s. I read Seabiscuit back in 2003 as I was then a budding horse racing fan and a writer of the sport. Naturally, it was a titanic influence on how I approached the writing of Six Weeks in Saratoga. I read Unbroken in two days when it had come out. I couldn't put it down. And the true irony of that book is that if it were anything but a nonfiction book, you'd say it was too unbelievable. Written as fiction, nobody would buy it. But when you realize this actually happened, and you peel through the end notes, and then you realize that Laura wrote the book under the worst of circumstances, it makes it all the more epic in scope. If you haven't subscribed to the show, be sure to do that wherever you get your podcasts. And if you dig the show, please consider leaving an honest review over on iTunes, like this one, left by Cricket666. I've been binge-listening Brendan for a few weeks now at work, and I finally feel like part of a group. Okay, I know. They don't know I exist, but knowing they are feeling the same way I am is comforting. As a new writer, there is so much out there that you don't know. Brendan and his guests clarify much of the nuances of writing, publishing, and editing. Thanks for all the tips, laughs, and amazing people. Well, thank you, Cricket666. Killer, killer name. And so, if you leave a review, maybe similar in nature, I just might read it on the air as my way of saying thank you. And one last thing. And one last thing. I've been a subscriber to Creative Nonfiction the Magazine for years now, which is why I have no problem reading this... Today's podcast is brought to you by Creative Nonfiction Magazine. For nearly 25 years, Creative Nonfiction has been fuel 
for nonfiction writers and storytellers, publishing a lively blend of exceptional long and short form nonfiction narratives and interviews, as well as columns that examine the craft, style, trends, and ethics of writing true stories. In short, creative nonfiction is true stories well told. Go get your subscribe on. I dig it. Okay, this is it, folks. I hope you're as fired up as I am. Here's the unbreakable Laura Hillenbrand. Quite literally, life-threatening for you. Um, so, what was what was that experience like? And the moment you decided that it, you know you needed to take that leap and, and get out to the West Coast, it it was absolutely terrifying for me to try to do it. I knew what I was risking. I had I had had a lot of experiences where I had crossed my line and gotten too exhausted and it had dropped me back years and and these things weren't things I recovered from I would be bed bound and, and uh, I knew potentially I could die on this trip but I had just come to a point where I was willing to die in order to live you know I was willing to take that risk for the chance of having a bigger life that for a long time I had concluded was going to be lived in a single room and I just wanted so much more than that, and it was it was worth trying, and and it was hard, and it was scary, and it it was very difficult the first week or so. I was very terrified, right. but it got a little easier as it went along, and um, and I made it, and and now I I travel. Uh, we go out in an RV, and we uh, I just recently got back from a trip of traveling around the Southwest, which I'd not seen before, and it's. I mean, every every moment of it is a miracle for me now because I, I thought I would never experience these things. And just looking, you know, driving through Kansas and seeing the waving grass, the golden grass, and, and just raving and raving about that and just feeling so blessed to be able to see it with my own eyes. It's, every experience is like that now for me. It's um, in a really weird way. It's been it's been a good thing that I lost so much for so long because life is so rich now. That's uh yeah, that's incredible that to uh, so many of the, those miles, especially those corn miles and those wheat miles across the country that so many people drive through without giving a moment's glance. It was in a sense, like probably one of the more beautiful sights you've ever seen as you were crossing the country. Uh, what else did you, yeah. what else caught your eye and just, strengthened you as as you went across the country? There really wasn't anything that didn't strike me as beautiful. I mean, even when we would pass through sort of a rough town, it, it was it was beautiful to me because it was something new. It was a new place. It was I would look in each front window of a house we'd go by in some small town and imagine the life that was being lived in it. Um, and then there were the huge grand things like going through the Badlands which I, I actually never even knew what the Badlands were. Um, and I didn't know I was going there that day. My, my boyfriend said, I don't want you to look ahead on the map at where we're going. Just just ride. <laughs> and we're riding along, and there's, you know, it's beautiful South Dakota, and I'm loving that. And he took the left turn, and all of a sudden, we're in these gigantic striated canyons of a million different colors. And, uh, you know, there are, there are coyotes running around and, and uh uh, big horned sheep and and just you know prairie dogs and I, I just couldn't believe it. It was um, it, it, all of it, the majesty of it, the 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 grandeur of it, the size of this country, the 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 breadth of experience within it, all the different lives. There is no one America. There's there's 300 million different lives in different places, and it, it's it was quite a thing to see it through the eyes I had at the time coming out of a life of such extraordinary isolation and, and sensory as well as emotional deprivation. Ooh. And has this experience now that you, that you've made it cross country and that you've been able to travel in an RV, ha has that given you hope that, that maybe you can do some of the, the reporting that you've been relegated to say newspapers and in the telephone is, is, have you given that consideration that you might be able to do some more observational stuff, or is that something you haven't been able to cross quite yet? Well, it, it's um, it's a less important as a historian. 
Um, just because, you know, when I'm writing about Santa Anita in, in 1932, mm-hmm. you know, that's gone. The track's there, but, but that world is not there anymore. It's a different place. And so it, it is less important to me than it would be for someone writing on a contemporary and that sort of thing. But yeah, I mean, I've done, I, I just did a series of interviews with uh, someone I will make the subject of an article and I got to meet him in person and spend five days with him. And, you know, that was, that was a different and, and lovely thing for me to be able to actually be with this person. He's a World War II veteran and, and, you know, look at his face and his hands and, and, uh, and hear his voice and experience him in that way as, with the wonder of, wow, he went through this thing. Mm. I'm not sharing what it is, but it, it, <laughs> he's an important guy. And, and it's now I will have the option, hopefully, um, with big projects to actually go to places. When I was working on Unbroken, I was very, very sick. And there was just no way. I, for two years of it, I actually didn't even leave my house because I, I couldn't make it to the car. I couldn't walk that far. Oof. So everything was done remotely and and i would get information from in in odd ways and and one thing i did is i i found a gentleman who was willing to climb into a museum's b24 and film the whole thing for me so that i could essentially walk around with him and get to know exactly what it feels like to sit in the navigator's chair or or in the co-pilot seat and know where all the dials are and and um, really get familiar with it that way. But I actually just a few weeks ago was up in Seattle crawling around the inside of a B-29 and, uh, you, you know, learning what that was like, actually experiencing what that was like firsthand and also a, a B-17. And uh, I never thought I'd be able to do that. <laughs> that, was, that was pretty amazing. That's incredible. I, I read that uh, you said, for for me, being a writer was never a choice. I was born one. All through my childhood, I wrote short stories and stuffed them in drawers. I wrote on everything. I didn't do my homework so I could write. So how? where did that sensibility uh, of being wanting to be a writer or even being born a writer come from for you? I don't really know. It just... It- it just was in me. It's in other members of my family as well. My mother was a writer. Um, she wrote for the Syracuse Herald Journal. Um, she was actually one the um, was then very prestigious. The Mademoiselle editorship. They had a, a contest uh, every year that, of of uh, college women all over the country, um, and they would choose a very small number to serve as guest editors at Mademoiselle Magazine, which was in that day a, um, a real thinking woman's magazine. And um, she was one of the winners of it. And I never knew that until writing her obituary this year. And, and uh, it, it was quite a big deal. And then she went on to write for the Washington Post. She became a psychologist uh, later in my lifetime. But prior to my time, she was a writer. And, and my grandmother was an English teacher. And so these things, I think a lot of us are born with certain proclivities that are just kind of there. You know, there are people you meet, and at six years old, they're already incredible athletes. You know, they just, there's something about their wiring that works that way. And for me, the wiring is toward writing. And it just, it doesn't, it doesn't go away. No matter what happens to me in my life, it's always there. And I need, when I experience something interesting, I need to compose it into something in, in words. It's it's just it's just part of the way I'm wired. When you were younger too, I, you know, you've, you've you've said that it wasn't a, a a terribly happy family to be around. So oftentimes you would be out at the farm with with horses out in the woods looking for arrowheads or Civil War bullets. This a lot of contemplative time, I imagine, and uh, being of the writer sensibility and writer's taste. Like, what were those moments like for you being out? outside in nature by yourself and, and thinking? I, I've talked a lot with my my next older sister, Susan, about this because she and I were the closest in, she's the closest to me in age. And we used to go out and, and do all that wandering and we would separate sometimes and, and do things. And for me, as well as for her, it was a way to broaden the imagination because you, you would automatically be seized in in fantasies and stories you would make up for yourself. I used to, there was a 
ancient trail. I mean, it's maybe it's thousands of years old through this through this wood that is over our main pasture up there. And I used to walk that trail and look down at the valley below and imagine that I was a a Union soldier looking down at Confederate soldiers, or that I was a Native American and, and there were cowboys down below. And, and I would I would write a whole story in my head about it as I went along. And, and everything was like that. Um, it was, it's something that my sister and I lament now in terms of the lives of children today because they are so scheduled, they are so regimented with a, within a certain scaffolding of their lives that they don't get that time that she and I had to just wander and let your imagination go. And I, I treasure those memories and, and the fact that I had that privilege to do that. And she's the same way about it. Uh, she's a very creative person and, and we both credit being able to do that and having that, that environment in which to do it. At what point did you realize that, uh, you know, of course you're crafting uh, fictitious stories in your head at that time. At, at what point did you realize that you were gravitating towards uh, telling true stories and being historical journalism, narrative journalism of that ilk? I think probably I was always thinking about that. There's just no real venue for that when you're a kid. Mm -hmm. um, you're you're doing more fictional things, but. I used to read American Heritage magazine as a girl. My God, my father got it. And um, I think there was a little bit of trying to please my father to win my father and get his attention because he, when we got to this farm, which is a very, very important place in my life, he was, he was a lobbyist. He was a very, very hard worker. He would go up there on the weekend. He would just unwind and he would read history. That was all he did. I really don't remember him doing anything else up there. And I knew it pleased him that I that I read history, so that's what I would do. He was interested in the Civil War, so that's what I, I became most interested in. Um, and of course, we were living, it, it effectively is on the Antietam battlefield, um, in a house that was used as a, a hospital during the war, during that battle. And so the history was all around me, and it was it was real. It was three dimensional. These were the these were the, you know. I'd grasp the doorknob on the house and think, did Abraham Lincoln touch this? Did he come visit this house when he visited the battlefield? You know, things like that. So I, I gravitated toward that and I enjoyed it. I loved history. I loved how it would inform the present, how you would see the whole world differently when you knew what had happened in it before you were there. And so it was it was kind of an easy thing. It, there was no hard decision to make about that. I, I don't know that I'm I'm cut out to write fiction and maybe someday I'll try, but I... I do love dealing with the real and, and what you learn about real people by looking at the lives of real people and what they go through. Uh, it has changed my, my way of viewing the world in, in a dramatic way. Yeah, you once said that I think if I had been writing fiction where the work is entirely dependent on the writer's creativity and the potential directions the narrative might take are infinite, I might have frozen. So... It was it a matter of like the the boundaries of true storytelling at least gave you that wireframe within to work. Yeah, I do. I, to use the word scaffolding again, I, I do love the scaffolding of of history where you have all of these facts about someone and you have a narrative arc, and then you you go into that and you research and research and research and everything I write is um, I, I don't embellish stories in any way. Everything I write is is something I've gotten from, from uh, if I can get, a corroborated source, but uh, definitely a source. And I would follow, I follow every tangent and try to get, chase down every detail I can get so that I can make it read like fiction, um, but but have it not be fiction and, and make, put the reader there with the person by making them as vivid as possible. And I really love being able to count on the facts in there. There's a lot of creativity that goes into writing nonfiction um, because you need to make a lot of choices in terms of where you start, how you tell a story, what you include because it's relevant and what you don't include because it's not. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of, of choosing to be done. And I, I, that's enough for me. I don't need to, to make up a whole story from scratch and have to have to choose every single thing. I do think it would be too too many options for me, at least right now. But someday I probably will try it to see because I did 
do that a whole lot when I was young. I would write a lot of short stories when I was growing up. And as you were growing up and having that reader-writer taste, who who were you reading at that time that inspired you and emboldened you to want to pick up the pen and sort of carry on that mantle? Huh. Um, I didn't, I had a funny childhood. I had an odd childhood. My, my, my family was an unhappy one and things were kind of falling apart a bit. And, and there wasn't a lot of childhood kind of things. I didn't read children's books. I didn't watch children's TV, things like that. I tended to read whatever was around in terms of other writers, the first person I remember would be Laura Ingalls Wilder. I, I very much loved her books um, and, and wanted to write like her and, and wanted to, to recreate a world the way she did. Um, she was probably the first really influential person. As I got older, as I got to high school and beyond there, I, I discovered Tolstoy. I discovered um, Hemingway, who was very important to me. I actually just went to visit his grave. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, that was wonderful and beautiful. Um, and uh, Edith Wharton and Jane Austen and Fitzgerald. Those were the big ones and remain the big ones for me. Those are the authors I keep going back to because when I read a book by them, I fall into the rhythm of their language. And, and for me, language is musical. It's not about grammatical rules and things like that. It's about a certain music that comes out of it, a balance that's almost mathematical. Um, and uh, they they have such gorgeous rhythm. They, they know exactly what they're doing. They write these perfect sentences and perfect paragraphs. And so I read them, and I'm a better writer for it um, because it's just influential. Even without you thinking about it, it's influential. And and because uh, so much of your, your illness has makes it very challenging for you to read at least it did and I just I, I don't know if that's yeah. still the case but the not being able to really focus because that vertiginous feel that yeah, yeah the, that dizziness um you also listen to a ton of audiobooks so that you know your your writing it it lands on the ear very well so how influential Thank has you. listening to audiobooks it lent that sort of musicality to your own prose it, that, that's a really good question, and and I think it has been very important. It was something I did um, out of necessity because I I have vertigo, and uh, people often think of that term as meaning uh, they get dizzy with heights and things like that. It's, that's not what I mean by vertigo. I mean hmm. that the that everything around me appears to be moving all the time, hmm. and I have a sensation of moving all the time. And one of the hardest things for me to do is to read, um, which is the cruelest punishment in the world for a writer. <laughs> right. But just um, looking at a page, I couldn't for many years tip my head down at all. So if I did try to read, I could only read short passages and with my head up. Um, also, CFS carries a lot of cognitive um, problems that make reading difficult. I know a lot of people with this disease who can't read at all, ever. Um, because it just it has cognitive problems that move words around the page and make focusing very difficult. Um, so that is a challenge. I can read much better on a screen than I can uh, in a in a printed book. But I haven't read a printed book in in many years because it's too difficult. And and what I did was I signed up for the Library of Congress's Talking Book Program, which is for the blind and visually handicapped. And you you can get anything. They record everything there, and they have really good readers. I've read hundreds of books that way, and, and I continue to, to read via audiobooks. And you learn something when you listen to books that way. Uh, by a good reader, you start to hear that music of the language, and you, you can sort out good writers from bad. I, whenever I read, I think about why do I like this passage and why don't I like this passage so that I can figure out how someone's writing well or not writing well. And a lot of it does come down to that, the, the rhythm and the tempo and, and just the shape of a paragraph or a sentence. And one of the things I started to do when I was writing Seabiscuit, um, I had just rewatched Ken Burns's documentary on the civil war and the uh, narration of that, which I believe was done by John Chancellor, is masterful. And I began to, in my head, 
think my my words in my brain in his voice. How would this sound? And then I began to speak speak them out loud. And now whenever I write something, I say the whole thing out loud. And I can often catch things I can't catch when I read it of, of how a sentence isn't working. It's too long. It's too convoluted. When you have to speak something aloud, you have to do it much more simply and with much more clarity than often writing uh, will, will make you do it. You, you, you miss that when you write it down. So I just, everything I write now, I speak out loud to myself and often inside my head as John Chancellor. (laughs) (laughs) And it works really well. And I actually highly recommend that people, the Civil War series is absolutely fantastic, but it's it's especially well narrated. And it's written very, very cleanly and um, with, with brief, simple sentences that convey facts very well. So that's, it's something I did learn from doing audiobooks, from, from listening to many, many, many of them. Uh, it makes you a better writer. I mean, originally, we told stories that way. We didn't have written language. We, we had spoken language. And I like to write books that that sound more like someone's telling a story over a campfire. That's, mm. that's what I imagine. I imagine my audience is kind of gathered around in a circle and there's a fire. And how would you tell this? if you were speaking that way. And and so that's that's how I do it. In the that great Will Hilton profile of you from a few years ago, uh he expostulates that, you know, you're of a generation of historical narrative nonfiction writers that has eschewed pyrotechnics in, in voice for the more a more straightforward you'll find a great story and tell it straight. And I wonder how did you come to that come to that style of writing versus trying to be someone who's very prose forward, like a David Foster Wallace or Tom Wolfe or Norman Mailer. Like how did you arrive at your particular style of telling it straight and wonderfully? I uh, thank you. That's, it's very nice for you to say. Um, and, and Will Hilton did do a lovely job with that piece. And he thought more about my writing style than I've actually ever thought about it. <laughs> it just, it just sort of is for me, you know, it just is the way I tell a story as an historian, I want, I want to disappear from it. I, I want to, to not be a presence in the narrative so that people are getting the story in the manner they would get it if they were standing there watching it happen. I don't want to get in the way, um, and, and I don't want to intrude. It, it, I think it becomes much more immediate for the reader if you just have the facts there and you don't have the writer standing there waving at you saying, look at me, look at me. So I think it's best, at least to my ear, to, to write with, with clarity and, and, and as almost an invisible person in it um, so that it, it feels as if the facts are just happening in front of the reader and there's no one in between the reader and the story. For me, that's when people write well, they're writing that way so that, uh, so that I'm there, you know, I'm, I'm watching whatever it is that's happening. And, and, uh, and then I can feel like, well, I didn't just read this book. I was, I was experiencing this story. Mm. So that's, that's what I go for. I didn't, I never made really a conscious choice to do that. It just feels right. And I try to be that way also when I do interviews um, with people is, is be non-judgmental and to be as, as a recessive a presence as possible so that people aren't altering what they say because I'm a certain kind of personality uh, and just sort of be, look, I, I'll listen to you, whatever you have to say. I'm going to ask you the questions that seem like they have obvious answers because so often you're surprised um, that the, the things you assume are true might not be. And that's how I go about it. And in the process of your of your interviewing, which predominantly is over the phone, um, how have you gr- grown comfortable with an element of silence and not feeling feeding, um, filling in that dead time with uh, you know verbal static because that can sometimes feel uncomfortable. I imagine asking somebody a question and then they might take a while to think and it takes a while to get comfortable in that silence. So I wonder if how how maybe you have grown comfortable in that tension to coax out the right story, those details that allow us to so vividly live it in what you ultimately write. 
That's an interesting question. I, I don't know that I've encountered too many people that have, have really stopped. I mean, there's some people who want to think about what they're going to say, and they're very careful. And I like to give the interviewee as much space as possible, um, in part because their mind's going, and, and they may think of something that is not that I haven't directly asked, but they realize, oh, this should be part of the story. And the best stuff you get in interviews is the stuff that, that you didn't think about asking beforehand because you didn't know anything about it. Um, I had, when I was writing Seabiscuit, I was interviewing this ancient horse trainer um, over the phone. He's sitting over a bowl of soup. It got completely cold because we talked for so long. And I'm asking him questions about Seabiscuit, Seabiscuit's trainer and things like that. And he's telling me about 1928. And then he just says in passing, that was the year the mountain of manure uh, was hit by a flood uh, <laughs> down in Mexico, and it it, it crashed into the um, grandstand and knocked it down, and uh, and it washed out the barns. And, and then he's like, "Well, that's neither here nor there." And he, he so he goes on talking about what I asked him, and I'm like, "Wait a minute, <laughs> back up." <laughs> and so he tells me the story about this night. You rained like 11 and a half inches in one night, and this flash flood came, and they had a gigantic mountain of manure behind the uh, barns at this track in, in Mexico. And uh, this flash flood hit it, and it the, the whole mountain of manure moved, and it was 20 feet high or something. And it did knock down the grandstand and the barns. And the, the grooms ran through and opened all the doors and shooed the horses out. And the horses all ran into the hills. This is in Tijuana. <laughs> and for quite a long time afterward, the, the very impoverished locals in Tijuana were riding around on zillion-dollar racehorses <laughs> <laughs> that they caught. And he, so he told me the whole story. And he was like, you know, no one's ever asked me about that. I haven't thought about that since, since way back then. And he was a young guy there at the time. So I called all of my sources who had been at Tijuana around that time. Like, do you remember a time when flash blood and a mountain of manure hit the grandstand? They're like, oh, yeah, I was there. And so I got several of these old guys to tell me more details about the story. And then I looked up weather records and things like that. And it turned into this whole big thing because this ancient gentleman had paused and just muttered something about this. And, you know, I kind of let him talk. And and that's the beauty about these interviews is, is the stuff you don't expect. And you do need to give them space to tell those things. And and there's, a, there's another thing, too. When I was doing Unbroken, I was talking to a lot of former prisoners of war and a lot of veterans. And most of these people were very badly traumatized by what they had been through. There were a lot of moments when I'm asking quite difficult questions that I feel terrible asking, except all of these people very much wanted the stories told. Um, they made that very clear, like their kids had never asked or were afraid to ask, and, and they wanted it remembered. But they would need time sometimes to get through telling these things. And so I would just kind of sit back and try to make them feel comfortable and try to let them know that I was sympathetic and I would not trivialize what they said. I wouldn't turn it into a dramatic movie scene or something. I, I just wanted to listen. And it ended up being kind of therapeutic for them in the end. Um, you do have to adjust to everybody you talk to and be cognizant of their mood and, and how hard or it is to talk about something or whether they may have other treasured stories that you've never heard, like the mountain of manure in Tijuana. <laughs> <laughs> Has being in this line of work made you a better listener? Yeah, yeah. It 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 makes everybody really interesting to me because it, the more I do it, the more I learn how interesting people are and how everybody has stories. Everybody has histories and and you could be talking to someone you meet at a gas station or something and, and discover a whole really fascinating part of their life. And every time I do this, the more I work in this field, the more I come to be, um, I think about things in a much less black and white way now um, because 
I now see all of the realms of possibility of people's lives and how those things can uh, change them, how they can influence their behavior, how we can't stand on the outside and say, that's a crazy thing he did or that's a bad thing he did because so often there's a story there that influences who someone has become. It's made me much, much more compassionate and much slower to judge anyone. Um, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. It, having exposure to so many different kinds of people who have lived extraordinary lives has, has really helped me, I think, become a better citizen among these people. Mm. And when you're in the throes of the research or the writing, uh, how do you organize your, your notes and your research so you can have greater access to it and then push through sometimes the, the ugly middles of drafts, which I like to call, you know, your the, the honeymoon period of a book is over, but you're still far away from the shore. Like, how do you navigate those waters? Yeah, that's, I, that's probably different with every writer. Um, for me, I begin with a formal outline. Um, just, just like they touch in school, you know, I, I make an outline of how the story, the story seems like it should be structured. And then I will just go point by point, you know, the, the first thing I will try to fill out that part and then move on to the next. And when I get stuck, when I think, I don't have this down yet, or, or I don't have the right way to approach it. Um, I will go on to something else. I make end runs around things and, and uh, so I don't write them sequentially, uh, generally, although the last thing is usually the, um, the, the last part of the book. Those, those last sentences are so very important. And also the first sentences, I, I will go over those again and again. But I, I do tend to kind of circle around those treacherous areas. And, uh, you know, I try to tell myself when I get stuck, and everybody does, that it's there, that it's already in me. Mm. Uh, I just need to wait for it to come back out. And that's what I do. And and I used to go pour water in my bathtub and just sit on the side of the tub with my feet in the tub and just brainstorm and just keep telling myself, it's there, it's there. All you have to do is wait. It's going to bubble up to the surface. Mm. And it does. It never lets me down. At least from my point of view in terms of feeling like, okay, I've got that the way I want it the best way I can do it. And it, so, so that's how I work. It's, um, it's not that linear process other than I'm stuck on that outline. I really think the outline is, is a great way to work because then, then you have something down on that paper. You have sort of a map ahead of you and, and you can go ahead from there and it changes, you know, as you go and you realize I want to take this middle part of the story and put it first as, as a teaser to the rest of it or something like that. But the outline's good. And I read that you turned in the uh, your first. Oh, we'll just put air quotes around first. Your first draft to Seabiscuit to your editor Jonathan Carp in seventeen months. Is that true? And if it is, how how the hell did you do that? You pull that off? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't remember if that's true or not, but um, it, it sounds about right. Um, I, I had a two year contract with them, so okay. it sounds about right. But that's. That's how long it would be. But I had been working on the story for several years before I got the book deal. Um, my book proposal was a massive thing. It was probably 50 pages. And, and it, it had many years of, of uh, work I'd already done on it. And, and I'd done dozens of interviews. And, mm. and uh, so it was a lot of it was already there. Um, that, that project started with a, a magazine article I tried to write on spec. And, and uh I, I wrote it. I just thought, oh, it would be interesting to do something on CBC after all these years. He, he was a horse I'd always, uh, I'd kind of grown up with him because of this book, Come on, Seabiscuit, that I bought at a fair when I was a little girl. And I, I just read it and read it and read it. And I, I'd always known his story. So I did a story on, on it and I sent it to a racing publication. And, and the editor said, I really like this, but it's not timely. We, we don't really have a place for this. And, and they rejected me and I was crushed. I felt mm -hmm. terrible. And then I just thought, why do I keep going with this? There was some interesting things here. And I, I kept working and it, I started stumbling on a much bigger story than I realized was there, which was the story of all the people around the horse, um, 
which is really what the book is about. I mean, the horse is a big character in it, but the people around him were so interesting. And I, the thing that clicked for me was that this was the story of the depression writ small. The the collection of people you had a, a frontier cowboy who who slept on his saddle at night, and and uh, the, the Native Americans called him the Lone Plainsman. And you had you know he was he was part of a, an old America, an old West that was dying, and would would have its final death throes in the Depression. And then you had a a one eyed uh, prize fighter, failed prize fighter, who was becoming a jockey. His family had abandoned him. And, um, and then you had this, this automobile magnate, Mr. Future, um, a guy who had started out with, with two dimes and a penny in his pocket and had helped found the automotive industry. And he was the, 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 the man with all the urgency of the coming future. In the Depression, all of those types of people end up kind of washing together in odd places because of all the upheaval. And these three people you would never think would meet intersect around a horse and at Detroit, that's where they met. And you, you kind of had the depression writ small in this story. And I realized I can tell the story of the depression with the story of this horse. Mm. And so that's when it became much bigger. And I remember kind of looking up and saying out loud, could this be a book? And then I got going and then I really got going with it. <laughs> Where do you feel most engaged in the process and most alive in the process? I love the interviews. Um, I I toyed for quite a while with doing this story, a World War II story, and I, I have just decided not to do it because there are so few people who remember it who are still around. I, I think the time of doing first-person narrative kind of World War II stories is gone because there's just not enough people. And I love, love, love doing the interviews. I love exploring these people and getting to know them and hearing their stories firsthand. It's a privilege. It's such a privilege to be a writer and to be able to meet these people. And I I love exploring their memories with them and finding out all of these things I otherwise would not have found. Um, there's a lot, a lot of material that's available in archives and things like that, but they they often will, you'll hit a dead end with them. But with a person, you often don't hit a dead end for a long time because they, they know people and they, they have a lot of different stories and, and you can really explore them. So I, I love that part of it. Uh, the writing is alternately really a pleasure and a total agony. And, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, everyone says that. I'm sure it's like that for you too. Everybody who writes knows that that agony of, of writing. And I can't remember who, who it was who said it's, it's like being an armless, legless man with a crayon clutched in his teeth. I think it's Kurt and, Vonnegut. You know, it was that, yes, that's who it was. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> it, it's it's just a very very hard process sometimes, and and it's because it's you're trying to do a very big thing in right, but you you're not actually moving. It's all going on inside your head. It's really frustrating, <laughs> and so, you know, there's a lot of times where I get up and I've got to go. I got to leave it you know, because it's just not going anywhere. But, um, and I, I really enjoy once I have something down and begin to edit it, I think that's when I'm having the most fun is, is when I've, I, I feel a sense of safety. Okay. Something's on the page and now I can play with it. And I'm, I'm a, a huge editor of myself. I will change a sentence 10,000 times until it feels <laughs> exactly right. And that's why I, it took me seven years to write Unbroken. And a lot of that was, there were about a hundred different people interviewed and Louis Zamperini um, by himself was probably 75 interviews, many of which were three hours long. There was a lot of people and then a whole lot of sources. There was just an enormous amount of research, but there was an enormous amount of writing and then editing myself. And my first draft was gigantic. And, you know, then it's the paring down, paring down, figuring out what I, what I have to tell and what I don't. Um, but I, I do like I like the whole process. I'm a very happy person when I'm writing a book. Hmm. And how when you, when you're in the throes of a process of that nature, uh, what is your typical daily routine around the writing? What rituals do you have in place that kind of primes the pump and gets you checked in with yourself so you can attack the work with the kind of rigor that you that you talk about? I'm not very regimented in that way. It 
it, it's kind of whatever I feel at a particular moment. I, I can remember a lot of days with Sea Biscuit where I would wake up and the, the writing would just be starting in my head. I would just have some scene in my head and like, God, this is the way I can write it. And I would just jump out of bed and go straight to my computer. And sometimes dusk would be falling and I would realize I'm, I'm still haven't dressed <laughs> you know, because I've been working all day. I, I completely lose my sense of time when I'm writing. I go so far deep that it's just me and the words and the story and nothing else. And so I, I very often lose track of huge amounts of time when I do it. But it's just kind of what I feel on a particular day. And with me, with the first two books, my health was such a huge thing that I had to work around that. And it would it would be whatever my body would grant me that day. Um, and some days I was strong enough to do interviews. Some days I wasn't. Um, I always could write. When I had very bad vertigo, um, I would just lie in bed with my eyes closed and a pad and would just write without actually looking at what I was writing. The words would be going, but um, I would open my eyes and I would have written all over my own writing because I wasn't <laughs> looking at the page, but it was there. I would be getting it down. Um, there was a lot of trying to work around what was happening in my body at the time, which was pretty disastrous during Unbroken. It was, I was quite, quite sick. Um, but so I don't, I don't have a schedule and it just, sometimes I'll just be like, I got to go right now because I got to write, you know, I would just be forming things and, and I, I walk around with my cell phone and, and there's a notes section and I'll just have an observation and it, it's got to go down there right now. And I just read it out. I say it out loud into the phone and then it's there and I've caught it. Um, Cause these things do go away. <laughs> if you don't, oh, yeah. you don't catch them. Yeah. And with your illness, is it, is it a lower hurdle to jump over these days or is it still, can it still be every bit as bad as it was during Seabiscuit and Unbroken? I am a whole lot better. Um, I have great. really made great, great progress. Um, moving to Oregon was a great thing for me to do. I was stuck in Washington, D.C. Uh, from when I left college to, uh, other than two years in Chicago, uh, all the way until 2015. So that's uh, 1987 to 2015. And it, Washington, I love Washington. It is a really, really beautiful, wonderful, interesting city, but it has horrendous heat and humidity. It's one of the most humid places in the United States. Yeah. And that was, heat's really hard on me. Um, and I would just be stuck indoors basically from May to September because I can't, I can't handle it. And out here, um, there's almost no humidity in Oregon and the weather is extraordinarily good. It's, it's, it's really nice. And I'm surrounded by beauty. I'm surrounded by natural beauty. And I didn't have that in DC. You know, I'd be looking out at the dumpster or something and, hmm. and here I'm looking at two mountains and, um, and just have a lot of open space and a simpler environment, which with CFS, you, you need, less busyness, uh, especially with vertigo. You need, you know, not a crowds of people around, not a whole lot of noise. You need kind of openness and space to make your brain work best. And out here I'm, I'm rural or largely so. And there's a, there's a lot of, I can, I can look 60 miles away, you know, at a mountain or 30 miles away at a mountain. And when I was Living in D.C., I was living in Georgetown, and I could look across the street, and that was as far as I could look. <laughs> and it, it does it does bring peace to my brain, and I've been working with a physical therapist out here, and I'm just much stronger. I look like an athlete now, and um, I can I can just do much, much more than I could. It's still a, a presence in my life. I still go through bad times with vertigo. Um, my stamina is not great. My strength is as good as an athlete's, but my, my stamina isn't great just because of the way the disease works. Oh man, that's such good news um, to hear. Oh, it's, it's, I didn't think this ever would happen. And I, I now think I will get all the way back one way or another. So, um, I'm fighting for that. I get better every month. Um, it's, it's still, I'm definitely still not well. And there's things I still have to pay attention to like heat. I can't be in a hot restaurant or something like that. I, I, that becomes quickly dangerous for me. I know there's a line there. Um, and I, I'm not, I'm not normal, but I'm, I'm so much better. And you could spend a day with me and not know that I'm sick. Mm. Uh, but 
but there are definitely times when I'm I'm really feeling quite bad. Yeah. But it's a lot better than always, always feeling like, you know, I got to stick through the next 10 minutes to try to survive. Well, I've got a, if you have, a, if you have the time, I have two more questions for you, if that's okay. Sure. All right. Sure. So, so, um, one, one's writing and one's horse related. So, uh, with, um, what is that kind of sound in your brain that, that, that goes off when you know, you've got your teeth latched into a good story? Like what, what has to be in place for you? And then you all of a sudden know like, Oh, here we go. There's momentum. There's something here. I'm diving in. Yeah. It's, it, I, I've gone through that that question a lot because I've been looking for the right story to tell as the next story. And after Louis Zamperini and Seabiscuit, that's a pretty tough act to follow. Those were incredible yeah. lives. And I I want a narrative arc. Um, I get proposals all the time from people who say, you really should write about this. And it'll be it'll be someone's interesting life where they've had a lot of different interesting experiences, but it's not an arc. It's not a story. And I want a story. Um, and I got it with the first two, with the first two books. And so that's, that's one of the principal things. Um, it has to be somebody that I can live with, you know, that I can fall in love with the subject. Um, I, I don't think I could write a book about a horrible person that did, did evil things and things like that. I don't want to live with that. Um, I, I want to live with something inspiring and, and, uh, and just rich and, and, and interesting in, in that way. Um, and uh, it has to have a lot of source material because I don't, I don't want to be trapped with so few sources on something that I have to write something one dimensional. I love that. For instance, when I was telling the story of the match race between Seabiscuit and War Admiral that I found all these people who'd been there at the race, and they were at all different kinds of places. There was one guy who stood on a steeplechase fence during the race, which actually collapsed in the middle of the race. <laughs> um, and then he ran across the infield um, to, to watch the horses. And another guy who sat in the rafters. And I had, I had points of view all over the place um, from living sources, plus a lot of people who wrote things down, journalists and, and diarists and things like that. And when you have that much, all of a sudden, you can choose the perspective from which you tell a story. You know, you can tell it from what it looked like in the infield, or you can tell it what it looked like from up in the rafters. And you you have all this, this richness to it, so you get the totality of the experience. And that's something I want. And this, this story I just decided not to write about, that was a difficulty with it. The, the people involved are almost all dead. And there, there isn't a lot of new <clears throat> material and, and complicated material that will enable me to make it as vivid as possible. So that, you know, when I, when I told about where I'm walking down the track, I can tell you the color of his blanket and the way it was moving over his body because somebody wrote that down mm. or someone said it into a radio. And that's, that's maybe the most important thing to me is that I want to, take the reader and myself to that moment. I don't want it to be, you know, well, they say this happened. I want it to be, well, I'm, I'm standing here by the rail and Stephen Skid just went by and he, he looks like he's not going to run a good race. He looks sleepy. Maybe. Hmm. And you feel it. You hear him breathe. Uh, you hear what George Wolf says. Um, that's, that's what I want. Mm. And speaking of horses, I, I believe I read, I don't know if it's still the case, but it looks like you've had uh, all about Brown, a, a son of Big Brown, is in your care. Uh, what's that? Tell me a little bit about All About Brown and what that's been like for you. It's it's all around Brown. Um, all around yeah, Brown. Oh, is, um, okay. All around Brown. It, that was an interesting story. I was invited to go to the Breeders' Cup in 2016 to speak, and I'd never been to a Breeders' Cup, and uh, I, I was thrilled. And we could drive down there <clears throat> from Oregon to. Southern California. And after the races, the one thing I hadn't done in going to Santa Anita, my, my cathedral, you know, this place I had written about for years and had never been to. The one thing I hadn't seen was Seabiscuit Stall. And Seabiscuit Stall is as it was uh, back then. It was, they tore down the wall between his stall and the stall next to it um, so that he could have his pony live with him. Um, 
they were, they were such good friends. And it was a, a, a big old horse named Pumpkin. <laughs> so they made this giant stall and they've left it as it was. So there is this giant stall in barn 38 on the backstretch and I wanted to see it. And I was with Chris McCarron and, and uh, jockey. And he said, I can get you, I can get you back there the morning after the Breeders' Cup was over. So, so he got us in and we went back there and I looked at the stall for about two seconds before the horse in it stuck his head out and was just all over me with affection. He was the <laughs> sweetest horse, also stunningly gorgeous, but just, um, he was lonely and he lay his head in my arms. He nibbled on my neck and, and Chris is making this noise, like, don't let him do that. And I'm like, I have this feeling he's not going to bite me. And he didn't, <laughs> he was just affectionate. I tried to leave. He, he, he got all sad and was sort of beckoning back. So I went back. I couldn't get him out of my head. And we looked at his name and it said all around Brown. It was Mike Pipey's barn. And so I contacted Mike and I just felt connected to the horse. I couldn't stop thinking about him. And I, I contacted him and I wasn't thinking about taking the horse myself. I just wanted to make sure this horse found a good home at the end of his career. And I've, I've done that a lot. I've, I've bought a lot of horses away from slaughter buyers. I've, um, I've done a lot of horse rescue and horse placement and things like that in my life. And, um, so I just told him that I said, I just want to make sure, you know, if you get, a, if you get stuck, I can probably help you find a home for him. So he calls me back several months later and says, we retired him this morning. Do you want him? <laughs> and, <laughs> and I hadn't even seen this horse outside the stall. I knew nothing about this horse, but sometimes you have that feeling in your gut of this is meant to be. And Mike actually said to me, this is the horse will change your life. Mike loved this horse. Everyone did. He was a sweetheart. And so I just said, yes, thinking like, I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> and I hadn't, I hadn't owned a horse since 1984. And I'd been a very serious rider, but that was a lifetime ago. And I, we shipped him up here and he is, he's the most wonderful creature. He's Stunningly beautiful and very, very smart, uncannily smart. And we are retraining him. And he loves being trained. He's, um, he's bomb-proof. He's sweet. Everyone's in love with him. He, it just, he's adjusted really well to Oregon. He loves his life. I had him out uh, with uh, some retired racehorses, and he just lives in a herd. And uh, it's, it's just completely at peace. It, it's, a, it's been a wonderful thing. I, I renamed him Pants. Um, <laughs> Great. for no apparent reason, really, it just sort of came to me. We thought it was funny and he's a very whimsical horse. So oh. it, it's, it's fun. It was through Seabiscuit that, that I found him because he, he lived in Seabiscuit style and That's... he's just a blessing to me. I just, I just love this horse so much. And he, it was like, he was meant to be in my life. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, Laura, you've been, yeah. You've been incredibly generous with your time today, and thank you so much for carving out an hour of your day to talk shop with me and uh, and and everything. This is quite a thrill. I've just been such a great admirer of your work for so long, and to be able to talk shop with you is a, a thrill and an honor. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure for me, and I'm I'm really honored to be on your show. Thanks so much. You got it, Laura. We'll be in touch. Doesn't get better than that, does it? It doesn't. Don't even try. I'm speechless. I'm without speech, Jerry. Thanks to Laura for coming on the show. You can follow her on Facebook and go buy her books. They are re-readable and they are master lessons in research, writing, and pacing. You can follow me and the show on Twitter at Brendan O'Mara and at CNF Pod. Like the Facebook page. It's just the Creative Nonfiction Podcast. And feel free to follow me on Instagram where I post cool audiograms of the shows as well as stupid drawings I do when I need to decompress. Always compressing over here. Head over to brendanomero.com for show notes and to subscribe to my monthly newsletter where I share my reading recommendations for the month, articles, and what you might have missed from the world of the podcast. It's a simple little bite of goodness to start your month. Once a month, no spam. Can't beat it. Thanks again to our sponsors in Goucher College's MFA Nonfiction and Creative Nonfiction Magazine. And hey, Happy New Year, friend. Thanks for being on this CNF and journey with me. 
It was a hell of a 2018. So let's just keep it going. Let's keep doing this thing that we do that drives us mad. Here's to 2019. And remember, if you can do interview, see ya.